yes, we are talking about really heavy, horrific human rights violations and things that are happening, but we have this imagination and this creativity that can kind of lead us one step forward to that, that solution. If we don't have those two things, it's, it's, it's really hard to make this work sustainable, you know, in the long term. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Art Persists podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. In each episode, we sit down with artists who share their first-hand experience of using their work to stand up to some of the world's most feared dictators and regimes, and individuals working day and night to protect them. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we sit down with Safe Havens Freedom Talks, a non-profit organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of artists at risk and artistic freedom. The organization provides open platforms for human rights defenders in the arts globally. And this week, they've got their annual Safe Havens Conference happening in Mexico City. I sat down virtually with Frederick and Laura from the organisation and we talked a bit more about what they do, who they are and the state of artistic freedom of expression in general. I hope you enjoy. When I came into this field uh, a number of years ago, uh, I, I launched the, the sort of the icon uh, residency in, in the city where I, where I worked. This is Frederick. Previously a filmmaker, Frederick is now a strategic developer in the field of art and culture. He specializes in issues concerning democracy, inclusion and freedom of speech at the crossroads of art and human rights. He's one of the founders and a general manager of Safe Havens Freedom Talks. And our first guest, the very first guest was Parvin Ardalan. And, and she has totally changed my way of thinking and taught me so many things. So I'd say that everything, you know, my whole starting point in, in working with this, in this field uh, and how we work with it is, is so much uh, thanks to, you know, encountering her work. And we have, we have kept working since then. It's 12 years now. Amazing. What was it about her work that really got you changing the way you think? Oh, I think I think it's the the very humbleness. She arrived in 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 Malmo, Sweden, and, and immediately she was put on stage to meet you know, the audience and to meet people. And she was introduced by by the organizers as, as as a feminist icon, which which she is, and and a hero, which she is. But but she said, no, 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 that's that's not who I am. I I'm you know I'm part of a movement. So whatever you see that I do, it's us. It's we. And that that has really guided me since then because it it makes it makes the work make so much more sense because it's not about one of us or two of us or 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 for someone to you know uh, collect the medals. It's yeah. about being part of a movement and 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 just to do what you can a little bit or or a lot uh, yeah. depending on you know where you are in life uh, just to get this movement forward and uh, make things better. Yeah, I can so imagine that that kind of collective idea is so important. Laura, how about you? Well, I'm glad that Frederick found it easy. I had a hard time with this one to, to kind of get started. <laughs> That's Laura. 
Laura is a human rights professional with experience providing urgent support to human rights defenders and project managing collaborative and international initiatives. Her work has focused on issues of free expression, the right to protest and attacks on human rights defenders. Laura is currently process manager for Safe Havens Freedom Talks. And I went from, you know, thinking to where kind of my creative beginnings is, which is closer to literature and, you know, as someone who's from Argentina, thinking about, you know, some of the, the artists that were very active during the military dictatorship in the 70s. Um, and I always go back to a particular cartoon artist, uh, Mafalda, which is a cartoon about a very, you know, smart young girl who has complaints about the entire world. Um, and, and, and the military in Argentina completely dismissed this cartoon. And so that's why she was able to, you know, Kino, the artist, was able to continue kind of producing that when at that time it was extremely dangerous. And a lot of the artists and writers in Argentina had to be in exile or were were disappeared. So that's kind of where I was started. But if you permit, I came up with a better answer, um, <laughs> which is, um, so in my time, you know, my work right now is, is kind of uh, divided up in, in two areas. One is kind of more of research regarding especially protest rights. And then this other area is the very exciting work around artistic freedom of expression. And so in this yep. research, and um, I started looking into um, the artistic performances of a group in Chile called La Tesis. Um, the, oh, yeah. The La Tesis. So they um, did a performance um, two years ago when the protests were beginning in Chile called El violador, Un Violador en tu Camino, A Rapist in Your Path. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a, a, a global phenomenon. It's been redone all over the world. Um, the artists were persecuted for that by the police that they were mm. criticizing and talking about, you know, um, misogynist and, and patriarchal violence. And then they were kind of persecuted for supposedly inciting violence. But yeah. um, their story is incredible and their work is incredible um, in the way that I think it speaks a lot to, you know, a feminist tradition of performance mm. in Latin America, um, the, you know, power of you know, bodies that are made vulnerable, but that are incredibly powerful mm. when they come together in public spaces and, and are creative. And I think their work is just fascinating. And it's performance yeah. art is not an area that I knew a lot when I started, or I maybe don't even now. But to me, it kind of brings together both kind of a human rights activism element of a protest and the artistic component yeah. of the, that visual performance in a way that you know, it's hard, um, hard to so clearly distill uh, in others, perhaps. Yeah, thank you so much. I actually have a very similar uh, early story because for me, it was the, the street art of during the Egyptian revolution that really just captured my, I feel like it just brought the whole story together for me of what was happening, what the people were protesting and that, that really interesting line between art, activism and protest. Since you mentioned your kind of beginnings. Tell us a bit about your early life. So you grew up in Argentina. What was life like? Um, what was your initial career? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I grew up in Argentina. Um, I moved a lot uh, due to my parents' work and also kind of have a, uh, a family of generations of people that have moved to other countries and are a bit unrooted. In, in, a, in a very sort of like privileged way, you know, they were able to travel um, for work or for studies or things like that. But it meant we were a little bit all over the place. And it meant that I was a pretty 
shy and <laughs> lonely kid, which meant I read a lot and language was very important. So literature is very much kind of that initial kind of first love and what I thought would be my career. Um, yeah. But then right before college, I moved to the United States, felt, you know, extremely homesick for being in Argentina. And as I read more and more about the stories of writers that I was, you know, I really admired, um, then it's impossible to look at that history without thinking of the history of, of persecution and repression and mm. entire communities of writers that lived outside. And, and that was my interest into human rights. And kind of I came in at, at it from a very traditional perhaps way. Um, my first work was, you know, I worked at Human Rights Watch and then mm. eventually moved to um, PEN America where they were starting an, um, a program that was supporting artists at risk. And, and that to me was fascinating because I was interested in freedom of expression as sort of this primary right that if you do not have that, everything is affected. And also as kind of mm. this, this bell, this resounding kind of warning um, that when that is affected, it will affect those that are the most vulnerable. And I think that's kind of where my interest in supporting artists, activists, human rights defenders, all of these titles can be used and change and interchange, you know. Um, but thinking of, of protest rights, which is not, you know, a, a, an official right, you know, that is cataloged, um, or even the right to assembly, it's, it's a right that can be derogated, right? But there are exceptions to it. And yet, I think it is the absolute primary right. And, and, and that when we defend that, we defend the capacity of the communities that are made most vulnerable or the most, you know, uh, pushed aside to be able to, to be part of that. So that's a bit how I've yeah. kind of gone through that. And, and art's definitely been a language that I've been learning. It was not kind of my yeah. first area, <laughs> but I feel like it's, it's enriched my approach to thinking about human rights and, and I'm, yeah. I'm just fascinated and feel very lucky to be able to work at that intersection. Absolutely, absolutely. And Frederick, you are obviously uh, one of the founders of Safe Havens Freedom Talks. Um, tell us a bit about your early life and how you got to that before we go on to talking more about um, what you do at the organization. Okay, I'll try. Uh, <laughs> early life is a long time ago, but I'll try. <laughs> I grew up in the Swedish countryside in the middle of the forest. Uh, my parents were, were city people, and they followed the green wave in the 60s out to the countryside, uh, not really knowing, I think, what, what to expect. My, and my, my grandparents also knew that. My grandfather was a publisher, and my father was a mm. photographer who went into printing. Um, so, so... I was I was born there just just when they arrived, so I was mm. I was born a stranger in, in this context, mm -hmm. you know, from from like a completely off odd family. Uh, I think I think that has has made a great impact because I've sort of had this outside view of things. Yeah, and, and I think another thing that 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 I've thought of lately that I think influenced my thinking quite a bit when it comes to like dichotomies that we talk about a lot these days was that our small village was extremely small and was between two small communities, two small towns. Hmm. And I just couldn't get it that both these towns thought they were better than the other one, you know, <laughs> better soccer team, better, you know, ice hockey team and everything. And hmm. they were like quite fierce in their sort of hmm. hatred against each other. <laughs> and we were in the middle and we were nothing. We were, we were no one. Hmm. So we could sort of watch that, that happen. And that, hmm. I think, influenced my whole way of, of wondering, you know, what makes people think 
that their way, their life is is the best, is perfect. Yeah. Because just, you know, like 10 kilometers away, less even, the other people thinking the same thing. And they're so mm. similar to me, but to themselves, they're so much in the opposite, you know. So yeah. that sort of translated to the wider to a wider scale has, you know, made me sort of look at look at look at the world and, and, and life in from that perspective, that little boy in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that so, analogy. <laughs> yeah. But culture was an important part because uh, I think the population out there was made up by by either, you know, mainly farming communities, farmers, but also hippie collectives that came because these mm. late sixties. So you would have that sort of completely different uh, array of people, the, yeah. the like tenth generation farmer, hardworking, you know. And, mm. and then you'd have like city pe- people uh, just going out there having absolutely no idea what to do out there, how to, how, to <laughs> you know, how, how you deal with life in, in, in such a context and, and just do yeah. so so yeah that that was that was interesting. It sounds like a, sounds like an amazing childhood, actually. I guess, <laughs> but yeah, just, just like Laura said, like literature was extremely important. Mm-hmm. My parents had like bookshelves everywhere. So me being understanding that my parents and these people came from something different, something urban, I understood there's something outside of this, and this is not like the best. It's not perfect. It's not everything. But what is it then? Well, I had literature. I had all these books that I could read and understand and get into other people's minds and understand what was happening. And then, then of course, all the many music festivals that they would have, you know, mm. this would, would organize out there. Yeah. So definitely, the, the, these are, you know, the pieces of the puzzle that, that formed my, my yeah. views and my mind, yeah. Hi. I'm Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know we also have a magazine featuring seven artists from different parts of the world who are using their work to stand up to some of the most oppressive regimes? As a listener to the Art Process podcast, you can get 15% using the code T-A-P-P. That's all in capital T-A-P-P. Now back to the podcast. You co-founded the Safe Havens Freedom Talks almost 10 years ago, I believe, in 2013. Um, can you tell us a bit about why, why you set it up and what the vision of, of the organization is? Sure. Uh, we, we sort of said that we, we, have, the, we have a legacy, uh, legacy that, is, that is nine years old, um, but SHIFT as an organization, as an NGO, only started last year. So it's, it's, it's ah, okay. really not old at all. Um, it was started as a one-off conference when I was working for the Swedish Arts Council. I had just gotten involved in this um, um, safe havens system, the ICORN shelter system, and had launched the first uh, shelter city in London, Sweden, the third uh, ICORN city in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to come and work for the Swedish Arts Council and to write a handbook for shelter cities because Mm -hmm. the the Arts Council wanted to... you know, um, try to, um, well, they, they simply wanted to spread the word and have more cities join the, the system. So that became my job, to, to mm. travel around the, the country and, and recruit more more cities, 
which was quite uh, successful, not only because of me, but because of a lot of things, because there was a movement happening. So just within a couple of years, it went from three uh, icon cities in Sweden to 26. Wow. Uh, yeah, considering that most cities in, in, in Sweden are like not cities, they're towns. Yeah. Quite small. It's, it's amazing. pretty amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. and, they, and they sustain, they're still there most of them, which is quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. At some point, uh, there was a discussion regarding whether or not also musicians should let be let into the system of of, of shelter cities for persecuted writers, as it were at that point. Mm. Uh, so there was a discussion around that. And when that, that discussion happened, I, I realized that quite a few of these organizations that were involved in the same field and quite a lot of people in cities that were interested did not have the full picture. I mm. did. I, I, I sort of obtained more and more of a picture when I, during my time there, when I got to travel around the country and around the world and see that there are organizations like Safe Muse and Free Muse and, and, mm. and Scholars at Risk that do the same thing. And I could see they're not really, you don't get the full pictures because they don't really get together. Yeah. So I felt we should have it, you know, on the, on the topic of whether or not, you know, all art, artistic, yeah art forms should be part of this system or not, let's have a conference where we invite, where we invite everyone. You know, just, mm. I worked as a mediator previously in our life. So, so, so to me, the solution is always to bring everyone into a room and just talk about it you know, and just yeah. see what comes out of it. Just make sure everyone is there. So the Safe Havens Conference is about just making sure everyone is there to see what we do, what we don't do, and how we can do it better. Yeah. But it, it's, that's how simple it is. And, and that was um, thought of as a one-off, planned as a one-off. Okay. But the year after, people turned to me and said, you know, this this was good. We really, really needed to meet. So so when and where are we meeting the next time? Yeah. So from there, I sort of took it up upon myself to, to make sure that it happens. <laughs> so on all the people that were involved in, in programming and, and, and uh, arranging it were so, also, you know, really eager to continue so, so that's how we continue. And for several years, we continued to all kinds of different collaboration, collaborations with all kinds of different organizations. And Malmö, Sweden was like the home base. So that was okay. like hosting, hosting city mm-hmm. for several years. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we decided to start moving around the world with Cape Town, South Africa, as, as the first um, city, the first base location outside of, of, of Sweden. And that was in yeah. 2019. Okay. So, Amazing. So that's where, that's where the, the, the NGO eventually was, was born out of this. Uh, I see, I see. Well, yeah. it sounds so fantastic. And I think I definitely can imagine also maybe even appreciate more in a post-COVID world of actually how being in, this, in the same place as different people who are all interested or working in the same thing is so important. Um, a question for both of you is, was there a moment in the last, you know, at one of the conferences or a particular moment that has really stood out to you both? So this is the first year that I'm kind of on the organizing side. Um, okay. But the first um, Safe Havens conference that I went was two months about when I had started a new job that was my first job in the artistic, you know, freedom of expression field. And yeah it was sort of this invaluable moment where I was able to meet in person everyone that I would be working with almost afterwards in one place in a really sort of like 
warm and welcoming and informal kind of environment. And, you know, especially when you're working in kind of networks and collaborations, having that person-to-person -person interaction is completely different. I don't know if that's been your experience, but you can be following up a bazillion times with someone. If you've met them in person, that relationship completely changes. And I don't know how my work would have been possible if I wouldn't have had that. And so just, I think the timing and the opportunity that that was, was, you know, incredible. And that's kind of my first yeah. um, kind of reaction to the conference. And I think what I would hope that is um, the the experience for other people that, that join the conference, both new and old, because there's always new people and there's new connections and initiatives to kind of reflect upon. Yeah, absolutely. Frederick, was there a moment for you that stays in your mind? There are so many moments, uh, and there are so many, and, and I look back at all the pictures I've taken from the conferences, and, and people mm. look so happy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing, because, because they do, because there has been such an energy every time. And, and one, of the, one of the interesting, most interesting things that, that we're trying to do, and, and that I'm also trying to do with other projects that, that I do, is to try to have... Um, Create an atmosphere that is 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 like a cosmopolitan space that is mm. that could that doesn't matter where it is, you know. Yeah. Because no matter what, you if you come to like Scandinavia and you, you enter good or bad, you enter some sort of Scandinavianism that you have to relate to, you know, you have to yeah. be, you know, and, and more or less, you know, depending on like what kind of speeches and what kind of you know how they also mm. you have five mayors going, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, and, and there have been moments where I've felt that it works, where I've seen like, you know, groups of people arriving from somewhere and they mm. enter the space and they come inside the room and they start blending in with other people. You know, they yeah. don't go in this sort of chunk, you know, <laughs> they just open up and they blend in and, 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 and they, they feel safe. They feel yeah. Safe. They, they can speak with anyone, they can say anything they want, because it is a safe space. Hmm. It is very difficult to, because yeah. it can be broken with like one one speech that starts talking about, you know, us and them and we in the north and yeah. west and east and all that. Um, yeah. But it's beautiful when it happens. And it's, it's really what keeps me going. I, I love it when that happens to, to create that safe space. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds incredible. So it all sounds fantastic, but what what are some of the actual really difficult parts of of your work? I mean, are there in terms of the kind of obstacles that you have to overcome, or just responding to the situation that's going on across the world in terms of worsening threats to artistic freedom of expression, that kind of things? What are some of the really difficult parts of your work? I mean, you know, I think where anything that we want to for any event or any sort of network that we want to make that is truly global and accessible there's a lot of challenges that come you know yeah um it is very easy to say that we want it to be you know a, a global event and i think funders and partners are absolutely you know 100 percent honest in that but in terms of the logistics in the world that mm. we live in it is actually really hard to make it truly accessible and global you know uh, we yeah. want to move and the reason why the conference is in mexico this year and was in South Africa, you know, two, three years ago, is to move away from the center that is, you know, for the most part in Europe and the United States. And that is great in theory, but then what it means financially 
just just you know what it costs to fly mm. someone from a global south to global south city versus to Europe and US is completely different. Mm. What that means in terms of visas, and we're talking, we're not talking about artists looking for, you know, a safe residency or moving, which is hugely difficult. And many of our partners are constantly trying to figure out ways to solve that. It is for an event yeah. and it's incredibly difficult. So that's, you know, mm. that's the like logistics that I think is is the most challenging, you know. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, you know, both are challenging, but what makes it sort of like rich is, you know, in the way that Frederick says, we want it to be a cosmopolitan space and, and that's absolutely clear, but there's also this like, this balance that we want to do of kind of acknowledging the specificity of, of challenges uh, in a particular place or mm. particular identities, right? Like we don't experience threats or challenges in the different ways and how can we be, you know, honor that and give space to that and understand the levels of of stigma and privilege that exist in our world in the arts world and in the human rights world neither one is yeah. in any way you know devoid of that um mm. how do we acknowledge that while you know coming together you know as, as a whole and kind of moving forward it is both a challenge and you know the process that needs to happen for it to be you know a rich a rich program yeah absolutely I can so imagine that and I think I actually might, I really wanted to ask you both kind of looking at that dealing with whatever everything you're dealing with and keeping in mind everything that you're seeing and putting together what do you both think are and it's a really hard question are like the greatest challenges to artistic freedom of expression today oh well it's sort of not my field of expertise because my field of expertise is to invite people whose field of expertise it is. Mm. <laughs> but but I, can give, I can give it a go. I think speaking, you know, over the years having talked with people, I think I think there's so many, so many aspects and a lot of them are hidden because you mm. have, it's easy to discuss and talk about, not live with it, but to discuss and talk about the oppressive governments that put people in prison because they wrote a poem, you know, it's yeah. clear and simple, you know. Mm. Doesn't mean it's like easy for anyone involved, but, but for, for, to, to talk about it's quite simple, to understand it, to identify it's quite, quite easy. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you can find methods and try to, to, to heal that and, and, and make that better. But, but what you have also, of course, is all the people that due to class, gender, all these aspects, are not even, you know, promoted or or in the in the center of of, of, of our minds and thoughts because they are not even visible. Mm. You know? Yeah, and who might have to self censor, uh, you know, just to have a chance or or, or yeah. and and that is so difficult. And mm. it's, it's it's quite easy to have like festivals or whatever to, to promote free speech and artistic freedom and to showcase this and to invite people to get on stage and, and, and testify, you know, what happened. Mm. So far, that is, that is, you know, difficult and it happens a lot. What is yeah. more difficult is to have those complex conversations between people who can actually do something and people mm. actually experienced it to see yeah. how we can, you know, move all, all our efforts also in, in that direction. And, and, Big further, because mm. there's so much power there that could be let loose. Mm. 
That's really, really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I can completely see that, you know, if you're doing a campaign for someone who's been in prison that's there in black and white, you know, this has happened, he's the way we or she and we got to fight to get them out. But it is those complexities. And I feel like at in this context as well, I mean, in this time, so much is changing. I mean, even trying to get the picture of what's happening in the UK and understanding that is really complex actually and needs a lot of conversation. So I completely see where you're coming from. Laura, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I yeah, I think it's a, a difficult and a good question. Um, I think mm. I, I resist answering with one thing in the sense that it would almost create some sort of like hierarchy in terms of the different rates mm. that we're talking about. And I don't think there's there's a way in the sense that they're all, you know, uh, fundamental and interrelated, you know, and, and affect each other. To me, I, I think I'd like to kind of take it a step back and say what kind of, what's the biggest threat to the sustainability of kind of the art and human rights field that are supposed mm. to protect them. And that's maybe what worries me the most sometimes and takes yeah. the most sleep away from me. Um, how do we make it sustainable, especially as we are moving forward into a time where I feel like it's not just one crisis and we can recover. We live on multiple yeah. crises at the same time, one after the other. We've all kind of come out of this pandemic period, you know, burnt out, tired, you know, in a number of different things. Um, and I mm. think how to make it sustainable, how to make it strong has to do with address acknowledging this and acknowledging that we're humans and, and have these limitations, yeah. thinking about sort of the structural kind of historical factors that make, you know, are these fields, you know, not perfect. If we think of them as perfect, yeah. we are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, mm. And if we can do that, maybe um, we can think of a of a of a process in which you know there's a time where when I would only work on human rights that I felt like all we were doing was kind of denouncing and and that was and it's hugely yeah. important. But there is something that is extremely sort of like heavy and weighs you down in that. And so to partner that kind of denunciation with kind of imagination and kind of enacting what we want the world to be and that is where sort of like art yeah. and culture has this magic and so when you bring mm. those two together you're talking about really heavy horrific human rights violations and things that are happening but we have this kind of imagination and this creativity that can kind of lead us one step forward to kind of that that solution if we don't have those two things it's 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 really hard to make this work sustainable you know in the long term yeah that's a really beautiful answer actually thank you and I think it's true because it's so easy to become overwhelmed by everything that's going on especially as we're all so connected we can see it on our phones every day you know just looking at what's going on in Iran every day my feed is filled and it's it gets a lot actually and it's it's good to step back as well and think actually how can we contribute to to something to a conversation um, in a new way as well in a creative way um, which leads me to ask you, which is what I ask everyone as well, uh, at the end of all our interviews, is that, are you hopeful of the future? I think the very honest answer is some days I am and some days I don't, you know, I think <laughs> yeah. it's really hard to keep that up all the time. And I think there's more mm. harm in not acknowledging when it, it gets really hard because then we can't reach yeah. out for help or 
explore for that. Um, I think the key to me is being able to do work that makes more days hopeful than not. And I yeah. think whether it's through work or whether it's through, you know, having access to an art exhibition, uh, a concert, a book, when I integrate that, that makes those kind of days hopeful. And so the, the intent is always to have more of those than, than the other way, but yeah. yeah. Thank you. How about you, Frederick? Yeah, that is a difficult question. <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, I, I sometimes feel that, I, you know, on a darker day, I, I feel that human development is, 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 is that we think sometimes is like moving, progressing is possibly only like a technological and progress, you know, yeah. we get smarter phones. But mm. but what about our souls and our minds? Mm. It seems sometimes it's circular, you know, that, that things just keep coming back and we haven't moved one step. Well, on a brighter day, I I, <laughs> I, I feel better about it. I think I believe in the movement. I, I believe mm. in flow. I, I would, it definitely has to be global, right? I yeah. I do believe in in finding and, and people and, and getting together with people who want to do something and want to change to think there is a better way of living and 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 who understand that we need to be very respectful um, mm. towards towards you know our mother earth and each other if if we're gonna yeah. and I think it's possible. I think it's possible. But it takes a lot of work and especially when it's difficult you need to work harder. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a conference, a big conference coming up in Mexico in the first week of December, I believe. Yep. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what's what's that what that's about and uh, what will happen there? Yeah, sure. Um, so seventh to nine of December, we will be having a three days conference in in the city of Mexico. Um, it's around the topics or kind of our themes around resisting, reimagining, and and repairing. So we're kind of trying to look at both kind of past, present, and future um, as we're kind of coming together, trying to strengthen uh, shifts uh, network and grow them with a special emphasis on Mexico and Latin America, an area that, you know, um, has just some really, you know, difficult histories on some hand, but these amazing, amazing sort of like witnesses in terms of art and culture. And so we're gonna be, you know, we have sessions that focus on memory as a tool for justice, we look at curation and archivism as a form of activism. Um, we have a session that we're working on with the Mexico UNESCO office and Ben Chapas mm -hmm. to look at kind of indigenous languages and the work that needs to be done when we start this year, the UN Decade for yeah. International um, for Indigenous uh, Languages. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, because it is a working conference, a focus on sort of workshops and hives where we work together to discuss what does well-being mean for sustainable activism? What can we learn yes. from journalism regarding um, security for artists? Um, what does yeah. professional development look like for an artist who has been unrooted from their home um, and has yeah. to kind of start again? Um, and this is just like a couple of the things that we have, but it's going to be, I think we're all really, really excited about it. Um, and we're really grateful for the different organizations and spaces and 
um, abroad and in Mexico that are kind of working with us to make that happen. We really hope that there's going to be a number of sessions that will be, you know, recorded and that will be shared. And so that's, you know, a space that even if not everyone can be in Mexico for that, um, a lot of really fascinating conversations will come for it. And we hope that we can share it with a, with a wider public as well. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I will definitely be tuning into any of the public ones. <laughs> Thank you to Laura and Frederick for joining us for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about their work, please find links in the description. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Artfacist podcast. If you're enjoying the series, please follow, rate and share the podcast. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.